Welcome to Primal Encounters, a podcast about the harrowing stories of humans' attempt at survival in the face of Mother Nature. Every episode, I sit my friends down and recount tales of the traumatic, horrendous, and sometimes downright bizarre, where humans are put to their absolute limits in the outdoors, and whether they will come out dead or alive is always uncertain. We're best friends, and your host, a psychology student, a musician, and an ecology student. Find new episodes of our podcast uploaded on the first and third Fridays of each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as a warning, the content discussed in this podcast contains graphic and violent descriptions and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Drum roll! We're in our season finale! Yay! Yay! We have completed a season of Primal Encounters! Well, at the end of this, we will have. We did it. We also have an extra co-host! <laughs> oh, there she goes. Never mind. Uh, my partner's kitten, Butterscotch, has decided to say hello. So the purring that you heard at the beginning of this episode is uh, from the one and only Lady Butterscotch. How are we feeling about a season finale? Oh, boy. We did ten episodes. <laughs> You sure did. And people listened to them. You sure did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels good. I'm excited. I didn't think we'd make it to 10. Truth be told, I thought life things would get in the way or who knows. Um, yeah. The problem is that now Butterscotch is awake and now Butterscotch wants to play. Wants to play. Oh dear. Here we go. It's fine. I will hopefully edit out any and all kitten noises uh, and by edit out myself I mean Corbett will hopefully edit out we love you Corbett Mwah. so yeah we're in a season finale um, this episode is titled the most dangerous game and like every season finale here in Primal Encounters this is part one of a two-part episode part one will be released during our regular uploading schedule and part two will be released about two weeks after that uh, don't mean to leave you on a cliffhanger, but I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger, probably. So, we are discussing leopards, because Axel here uh, chose leopards, and I try as my might when picking a story. I couldn't find a story that was easy enough to do in one episode. So, the one story that I did find about a leopard that I really, 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 really wanted to tell was going to take two episodes. So, my original season finale, I'm going to save for a different season. Um, I'm not going to spoil what that one was about. But actually, what's funny is that I feel like we're going to have a trend every season finale. I'm going to have a book that we will be uh, going through and talking about. Uh, we have a book that we're going to be going through uh, with every season finale as like my base source. I want to have this be like the big episode I do a lot of research on and put a lot of work toward. So the book that I'm reading for you all today is called The Man-Eating Leopard of Rouge Pryag, written by the one and only Jim Corbett. Are either of you familiar with Jim Corbett? Mm. No, I am not. Um, a little from mm, from your various talks with me about man eating big cats. Yeah, in terms of man eating big cats, he is the guy. Uh, he has the most stories, has the most experience with hunting and dealing with man eating big cats, specifically in places like India and Nepal. This episode is interesting because it's like I get to introduce a protagonist and an antagonist and I get to like build up a, a really good story. Most of the things I'm going to be quoting are straight from Corbett's words. So the book that he wrote was uh, detailing his harrowing experience attempting to hunt down the now pretty infamous man-eater of Rouge Pryag. Uh, 
who was a leopard responsible for quite a bit of death in India during the 1918-1919, uh, actually even longer, 1918-1926 uh, time frame. So, do we have anything that we want to talk about before we get into this? This is a meaty episode. <laughs> um. How long has Jim Corbett, you know, how long was he doing his thing? I don't know. Yeah, I can know. I can introduce you to our protagonist. So to quote an article written about Jim Corbett, he was born in uh, Nanital in 1875, which is in India. Jim Corbett lived in India until independence, after which he left to Kenya, where he died in 1955. He is known as India's best-known hunter. Corbett earned fame after he tracked down and killed a number of man-eating tigers and leopards. He is said to have killed over a dozen of these cats. An ace shot, Corbett was called upon regularly by the government to track down and shoot man-eaters in the villages of Garhwal and Kumaon in the Uttarakhand region. But he was known equally as a storyteller. Who, uh, whose shikar yarns and forest tales kept his audience under a spell, and later as a conservationist. The son of a postmaster and one of many siblings, Corbett, along with his family, would come down from the hills every winter uh, to their home in the uh, Kaladungi in the foothills, which houses a museum today. These foothills would be his training grounds where he would learn, or as he would say, absorb the ways of the forest, jungle lore, and much more. Corbett, who volunteered in both the World Wars, was given the honorary rank of colonel and spent much of his life with his sister Maggie. In his later years, he all but gave up hunting, turning instead to wildlife photography and conservation. Corbett was one of the first persons to take cinefilms of tigers in the wild. He lived a pretty extraordinary life, uh, and as we read through this book, you will get to know more the interesting situations he signs himself up for. So does that give you an idea for who, we're, who our protagonist is? Yeah. Let me introduce our antagonist, so to speak. This is from Corbett's book. Quote, Leopards do not become man-eaters for the same reasons that tigers do. Though I hate to admit it, our leopards, the most beautiful and most graceful of all the animals in our jungles, and who, when cornered or wounded, are second to none in courage, are scavengers to the extent that they will, when driven to hunger, eat any dead thing they find in the jungle, just as lions will in the African bush. The people of the Garhwal are Hindus, and as such cremate their dead. The cremation invariably takes place on the bank of a stream or river, in order that the ashes may be washed down into the Ganges and eventually into the sea. As most of the villages are situated high up on the hills, while the streams of the rivers are in many cases miles down in the valleys, it will be realized that a funeral entails a considerable task of manpower of a small community when, in addition to the carrying party, labor has to be provided to collect and carry the fuel needed for cremation. In normal times, these rites are carried out very effectively, but when disease and epidemic form sweeps through the hills and the inhabitants die faster than any can be disposed of, a very simple rite, which consists of placing a live coal in the mouth of the deceased, is performed, and in the village, and the body is then carried to the edge of the hill and cast into the valley below. A leopard, in an area in which his natural food is scarce, finding these bodies, very soon acquired a taste for human flesh. And when the disease dies down and normal conditions are reestablished, he, very naturally, on finding his food supply cut off, takes to killing human beings. In the wave of epidemic influenza that swept through the country in 1918 and that cost India over a million lives, 
Garhwal suffered very severely. And it was at the end of this epidemic that the Garhwal man-eater made his appearance. The first human kill credited to the man-eating leopard of Ruj Prayag is recorded to have taken place in the Bangi village of June 9, 1918. And the last kill for which the man-eater was responsible took place in Bangswara village on April 14, 1926. Between these two dates, the number of human kills recorded by government was 125. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited, y'all. I'm so excited to tell you all this story. How are we feeling about these two forces being quote unquote pit against one another? I got my money on the leopards. Like I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> You'll find out very quickly that this is not an ordinary leopard. In yeah. Anyways. Was it like a single leopard? Yeah. It's a single leopard, a single male leopard. Yeah. That kind of freaked me out. Like leopards a little bit. Um, I'm somewhat reminded by, one of the, like the archaeological sites that was just like a big pit <laughs> and uh, a lot of like eaten human or like hominin relatives were like found like different skulls and different body parts and it was all from like predators like eating atop a tree and having the bones fall down into the pit. Um, I was just talking about this rising star. That's the reason yes. the rising star isn't a uh, a leopard's den because you don't find bones from other animals in there. It's simply it's only the hominins, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, context clues. Okay, so this place is a very holy place that he is he's going to. He is specifically going to be based in Rudraprayag along the Alakananda, uh, and this place has a lot of pilgrims that come through that are doing a sacred pilgrimage. Uh, along these roads, which is very significant to this story. We're looking at heavy, dense jungle, steep mountainsides, vast valleys. It's not going to be a very easy terrain to be tracking a leopard across uh, for the 10 weeks that Jim Corbett will be hunting this leopard. Now, Corbett himself does not hear of definite news about the man-eater of Ruja Prayag till 1925. He is at a theater when he overhears the then chief secretary of the government of the United Provinces attempting to persuade a group of hunters to go after the man-eater. To which one of those men replies, quote, go after a man-eater that has killed a hundred people? Not on your life. The next morning, Corbett goes to this gentleman, uh, the, the uh, chief secretary, and he wants to get more leopard or details on the leopard. This gentleman suggests to Corbett to get in touch with Sir William Ibbotson and Ruja Prayag, who had recently been posted to Garhwal as deputy commissioner. Coincidentally, Corbett, as, as he was re- uh, arriving home, found a letter on his desk from Ibbotson formally requesting the acclaimed hunter to come deal with Garhwal's man-eater. Corbett immediately prepared for the trip. Now, to give you all and the listeners an idea for what Corbett has just signed himself up for, I want to read from a chapter he titled Terror. No curfew order has ever been more strictly enforced and more implicitly obeyed than the curfew imposed by the man-eating leopard of Ruja Prayag. During the hours of sunlight, life in that area carried on in a normal way. Men went long distance to the bazaars to transact business or to outlying villages to visit relatives or friends. Women went up to the main sides to cut grass for thatching or for cattle fodder. Children went to school or into the jungles to graze goats or to collect dry sticks. 
And if it's summer, pilgrims, either singly or in large numbers, toiled along the pilgrim routes on their way to and from the sacred shrines of Kedernath and Badranath. As the sun approached the western horizon and the shadows lengthened, the behavior of the entire population in the area underwent a very sudden and very noticeable change. Men who had sauntered to the bazaars or outlying villages were hurrying home. Women carrying great bundles of grass were stumbling down steep mountainsides. Children who had loitered on their way home from school or who were late in bringing in their flocks of goats or the dry sticks they had been sent out to collect were being called by anxious mothers. And the wary pilgrims were being urged by any local inhabitant who passed them to hurry to shelter. When night came, an ominous silence brooded over the whole area. No movement and no sound anywhere. The entire local population was behind fast closed doors and in many cases had sought further protection by building additional doors. Those of the pilgrims who had not been fortunate enough to find accommodation inside houses were huddled close together in pilgrim shelters and all, whether in-house or shelter, were silent for fear of attracting the dread man-eater. This is what terror meant to the people of Garbwal and to the pilgrims for eight long years. It's a long time for a curfew. It's really sad. Yeah. yeah. Prior to Corbett's arrival, there were several incidents that served as reminders to the locals and travelers the fearsome yet stealthy nature of this beast. Here are just some of the anecdotes from the book about the leopard and his victims. A boy, an orphan aged 14, was employed to look after a flock of 40 goats. He was of the depressed untouchable class, and each evening when he returned from his charges, he was given his food and then shut into a small room with the goats. The room was on the ground floor of a, a long row of double-storied buildings and was immediately below the room occupied by the boy's master, the owner of the goats. To prevent the goats crowding in on him as he slept, the boy had fenced off the far left-hand corner of the room. This room had no windows and only one door. And when the boy and the goats were safely inside, the boy's master pulled the door to and fastened it by, by passing the hasp, which was attached by a short length of chain to the door over the staple fixed in the lintel. A piece of wood was then inserted in the staple to keep the hasp in place, and on his side of the door, the boy, for his better safety, rolled a stone against it. On the night the orphan was gathered to his father's, his master asserts the door was fastened as usual, and I have no reason to question the truth of his assertion. In support of it, the door showed many deep claw marks, and it is possible that in his attempts to claw open the door, the leopard displaced a piece of wood that was keeping the hasp in place, after which it would have been easy for him to push the stone aside and enter the room. Forty goats packed into a small room, one corner of which was fenced off could not have left the intruder much space to maneuver in, and it is left to conjecture whether the leopard covered the distance from the goat boy to the boy's corner of the room over the backs of the goats or under their bellies, for at this stage of the proceedings all goats must have been on their feet. It were best to assume that the boy slept through all the noise the leopard must have made when trying to force open the door, and that the goats must have made when the leopard had entered the room, and that he did not cry for help to deaf ears, only screamed from him, and the danger that menaced him by a thin plank. After killing the boy in the fenced-off corner, the leopard carried him across the empty room. The goats had escaped into the night, down, had escaped into the night, 
down the steep hillside and then over some terraced fields to a deep bouldered strewn ravine. It was here after the sun had been up for a few hours that the master found all that the, le the leopard had left of its servant. Incredible as it may seem, not one of the 40 goats had received so much as a scratch. That's, no, oh. that's so cool. No, that's not. It's really not. Damn, that's like so deliberate for an animal. That's crazy. Yes, and it's going to pop up again. The almost supernatural ability this animal has to sneak into houses unheard and to get its victims in such a quick motion that nothing is heard from them as well. Let's continue on with some anecdotes. A neighbor had dropped in to spend the period of a long smoke with a friend. The room was L-shaped, and the only door in it was not visible from where the two men sat on the floor with their backs to the wall smoking. The door was shut but not fastened, for up to that night there had been no human kills in this village. The room was in darkness, and the owner of it had just passed the hookah to his friend when it fell to the ground, scattering a shower of burning charcoal and tobacco. Telling his friend to be more careful, or he would set the blanket on which they were setting on fire, the man bent forward to gather up the embers, and as he did so, the door came into view. A young moon was near setting, and silhouetted against it, the man saw a leopard carrying his friend through the door. When recounting the incident to me a few days later, the man said, I am speaking the truth, Sahib. When I tell you I never heard even so much as the intake of a breath or any other sound from my friend who was sitting only an arm's length from me, either when the leopard was killing him or when it was carrying him away. There was nothing I could do for my friend, so I waited until the leopard had gone some little while, and then I crept up to the door and hastily shut it and secured it. Story number two. <sighs> the thing is too quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll do that one. We'll do one more and then I'll stop. The wife of a headman of a village was ill from a fever, and two friends had been called to nurse her. There were two rooms in the house. The outer room had two doors, one opening on small flagged courtyard and the other leading into the inner room. This outer room had also had a narrow slip of a window set, some four feet above the floor level, and in this window, which was open, stood a large brass vessel containing drinking water for the sick woman. Except for the one door giving access to the outer room, the inner room had no other opening in any of its four walls. The door leading out to the courtyard was shut and securely fastened, and the door between the two rooms was wide open. The three women in the inner room were lying on the ground, the sick woman in the middle with her friend on either side of her. The husband in the outer room was on a bed on the side of the room nearest the window, and on the floor beside his bed, where its light would shine into the inner room, was a lantern turned down low to conserve oil. Round about midnight, when the occupants of both the rooms were asleep, the leopard entered by way of the narrow slip of a window, avoiding in some miraculous way knocking over the brass vessel, which nearly filled it, skirted around the man's low bed, and entering the inner room, killed the sick woman. It was only when the heavy brass vessel crashed to the floor as the leopard attempted to lift its victim through the window that the sleepers awoke. When the lantern had been turned up, the woman who had been sick was discovered lying huddled under the window, and in her throat were four great teeth marks. A neighbor, whose wife had been one of the nurses on that night, when relating the occurrence to me, said, quote, The woman was very ill from her fever, and it was likely to have died in any case, so it was fortunate that the leopard selected her. It's a very uh, mercenary way of looking at it, I guess. 
But this is just some of the accounts that Corbett is hearing as he enters in. This is, this is a, in terms of leopard stealth, a very stealthy leopard. Yeah. It's interesting that it didn't knock over the lantern. So it might be used to things in like human environments, like making connections. You're making good connections already. So, besides the leopard's formidable ability, Corbett also had to contend with the landscape. While reviewing the maps of the region, the hunter realized this man-eater traversed a territory of nearly 500 square miles. Most of that terrain was mountainous, rugged, and shrouded in thick jungle. Faced with a near-impossible task, Corbett decided to use the Alakananda River, which divided the area in two near-equal parts to his advantage. He knew that the only way across for the leopard were two suspension bridges in Rujapriag and Chatwapipa. Corbett figured that if he could close off access to the two suspension bridges, the leopard would confide would be confined to one side of the river, which would give Corbett a better chance at locating and killing it. He knew the last kill was on the left side of the bank near Chatwapipa, but considering a beat had occurred uh, shortly after the kill, the leopard would most likely fled to the opposite side of the bank. Do we know what a beat is? Um, in music, but no. <laughs> like the root vegetable? No. Um, so if a, this is actually pretty, I don't want to say it's pretty common, but um, beats were used to flush out big game. So like tigers and leopards, um, especially when tiger hunting was very popular in Colonial India, one of the ways that you would hunt a tiger is that you would go to an area you knew a tiger was, and you would line up hundreds of people with drums, loud noises, and in a large you know, wave, you would slowly go throughout the terrain, making noise in the hopes of flushing out the animal. So after... It's like primal hunting. Yeah. <laughs> For us. Yeah, no, it kind of is. Instead of... Um, so that's what he means by a beat had occurred, and most likely the leopard would have dipped to the other side of the river to avoid all of the noise and the ruckus. Gotcha. So on his first day in Rujapraya, Corbett purchases two goats. One he tied up near the Pilgrim Road and one on the other side of the river. The next morning, he found the goat across the river dead and partially eaten. A leopard had for sure killed the goat, but Corbett suspected a smaller predator had consumed parts of the animal. For the rest of the day, Corbett set up near the goat and waited for the leopard to return. Unfortunately for him, neither hide nor hair was seen of the man-eater, so he returned in for so he turned in for the evening, making sure to keep an eye out over his shoulder in case he was being watched, which was good instincts because the next morning he discovered pug marks from a male leopard just outside his bungalow gates. The animal had followed him home. Corbett walked as many miles as he could that day to warn the locals that the leopard was on their side of the river and to be careful. For clarification, when I say pug marks, uh, that is the description typically used uh, for big cat tracks. Uh, so lion pug marks, tiger pug marks, like uh, leopard pug marks. It's just the it's the term people use for their, their footprints. Mm. Don't ask me why we use that instead of footprints for those cats specifically, but we do. There would be no sign of the leopard uh, that day, but on the following morning, a very agitated man made his way to Corbett's bungalow to inform him a woman had been taken by the man-eater just the previous night in a village on the hill above them. Within minutes, Corbett is packed and following in the footsteps of villagers who escort him to the village some three to four miles up this steep hill. Let me read what he finds. <laughs> the story of the husband of the woman who had been killed was soon told. 
after their evening meal, which had been eaten by the light of the fire, the woman collected the metal pots and pans uh, that had been used and carried them to the door to wash, while the man sat down to have a smoke. On reaching the door, the woman sat down on the doorstep, and as she did, so the utensils clattered to the ground. There was not sufficient light for the man to see what had happened, and when he received no answer to his urgent call, he dashed forward and shut the barred door. Quote, of what use would it have been for me to risk my life in trying to recover a dead body? His logic was sound, though heartless, and I gathered that the grief he showed was occasioned not so much by the loss of his wife, as by the loss of that son, an heir whom he had expected to see born within the next few days. No. Damn. The door where the woman had been seized opened on to a four-foot-wide lane that ran for 50 yards between two rows of houses. On hearing the clattering of the fallen pots and pans, followed by the urgent call of the man to his wife, every door in the lane had been instantaneously shut. The marks on the ground showed that the leopard had dragged the unfortunate woman the length of the lane and then killed her and carried her down the hill for a hundred yards into a small ravine that bordered some terraced fields. Here, he ate his meal, and here he left the pitiful remains. The body lay in the ravine at one end of a narrow terraced field, and at the other end of which, 40 yards away, was a leafless and stunted walnut tree, whose branches a hayrick had been built, four feet from the ground and six feet tall. In this hayrick, I decided to sit. So he sets up the body, and what he does is he gets fishing line and he will tie it around the triggers of his shotgun and rifle that he stakes up near where the body is. So if the leopard walks around the body, he could trigger the guns and shoot himself, the leopard. Mm -hmm. Corbett also takes a white rock from the ravine, and he sets it up near the foot of the body, or about a foot from the body. He does this so that even when it's nighttime and he can't have light, he can get an idea for where the leopard is. If you can't see the rock, which is white, and it should stick out at night, then it's probably the leopard who's standing right there in front of him. Unfortunately for Corbett, all of his meticulous planning was for naught. Lightning flashed and thunder roared as a downpour was unleashed upon him. <laughs> Jeez. Without a proper visual, Corbett was unable to take the shot uh, he needed even as the leopard returned to his victim. When the rain subsided, Corbett could see the white stone he set up in the ravine was obscured. When he raised his heavy rifle, the leopard moved. This continued for hours, him raising the rifle. And because it's so heavy, he could only have it up for so long. And every time his arms would get tired and he put it down, the leopard would walk right back in front of him. <laughs> of course. Seriously. Uh, this continued for hours until morning, and Corbett had to conceive defeat. He changed tactics and repositioned his stake out to the Ruja Priak suspension bridge where he thought the leopard had fled to the previous night. So for the next 40 nights, Corbett sets up at the bridge, taking down the blockades that he had erected in hopes the leopard would take the chance to cross. But the only living thing Corbett sees in those 20 nights is a lone jackal. Now, during this time frame, Ibbotson arrives with his wife, and Corbett and his men actually have a near-fatal encounter with the man-eater. While I was standing guarding the bridge, Ibbotson and his wife, Jean, had arrived from Powery. And as the accommodation in the inspection bungalow was very limited, I moved out to make room for them and set up my 40-pound tent on the hill on the far side of the Pilgrim Road. 
A tent afforded little protection against an animal that had left his claw marks on every door and window for miles around, so I helped my men to put a thorn fence around the ground we intended to camp on. Overhanging this plot of ground was a giant prickly pear tree, and as its branches interfered with the erection of the tent, I told the men to cut it down. When the tree had been partly cut through, I changed my mind, for I saw that I shouldn't be without shade during the heat of the day, so instead of felling the tree, I told the men to lop the overhanging branches. This tree, which was leaning over the camp at an angle of 45 degrees, was on the far right end of the fence. There were eight of us in the little camp, and when we had eaten our evening meal, I wedged a thorn bush securely into the opening in the fence we had entered by, and as I did so, I noticed that it'd be very easy for the man-eater to climb the tree and drop down on our side of the fence. However, it was too late then to do anything about it, and if the leopard left us alone for one night, then the tree could be cut down and removed in the morning. Sorry. I had no tents for my men, and I had intended that they should sleep with Ibbotson's men in the outbuildings of the inspection bungalow, but this they had refused to do, asserting that there was no more danger for them than there was for me in the open tent. My cook, who I discovered a very noisy sleeper, was lying next to and about a yard from me, and beyond him, packed like sardines in the little enclosure, were the six garpalis I had brought from Manitou. The weak spot in our defense, the tree, I went to, the weak spot in our defense was the tree, and I went to sleep thinking nothing of it. Oh, I went to sleep thinking of it. Sorry. It was a brilliant moonlit night, and right about midnight, I was suddenly awakened by hearing the leopard climbing the tree. Picking up the red foal, which was laying ready loaded on my bed, I swung my legs off the bed and had just slipped my feet into the slippers to avoid the thorns which were scattered all around when there was an ominous crack from the partly cut through tree, followed by a yell from the cook of, ah! <laughs> In one jump, I was just outside the tent and swinging around, but was just too late to get the rifle to bear on the leopard as it sprang up the bank on the ter- onto a terraced field. Pulling the bush out of the gap, I dashed up to the field, which was about 40 yards in width and bare of crops. And as I stood scanning the hillside, dotted with, over with thorn bushes and a few big rocks, the alarm call of a jackal far up the hill informed me that the leopard had gone beyond my reach. The cook informed me later that he'd been lying on his back, a fact of which I had been long aware. And hearing the tree crack, he opened his eyes and looked straight into the leopard's face, just as it was preparing to jump down. The tree was cut down the next day, and the fence strengthened. And though we stayed in that camp for several weeks, our slumbers were not again disturbed. It's a crafty little fella. <laughs> like, yeah. peekaboo, bitch. Okay. Right? <laughs> so following their run-in with the leopard, several cows were killed in the village by a leopard Corbett suspected to be the man-eater. He and Ibbotson get to work setting up a gin trap, which had been given to them by the government some days prior. A gin trap is kind of like a bear bear trap. Oh, okay. So I have a few passages I want to read real fast from them. (laughs) To assist in killing the man-eater, the government a few days previously had sent us a gin trap. This trap, which was five feet long and weighed 80 pounds, was the most fearsome thing of its kind I've ever seen. Its jaws, armed with sharp teeth three inches long, had a spread of 24 inches, and they were actuated by two fat, powerful springs which needed two men to compress. When leaving the kill, the leopard had followed a footpath across a field about 40 yards wide, up a three-foot bank, and across another field bordered by a densely scrub-covered hill. 
this three foot step from the upper to the lower field, we set the trap. And to ensure the leopard stepping on to it, we planted a few thorn twigs on either side of the path. To one of the trap, to one of the trap, to one of the trap was attached a short length of half inch thick chain. Terminating in a ring three inches in diameter, through this ring we drove a stout peg, chaining the trap to the ground. When these arrangements had been completed, Gene Ibbotson returned to the bungalow with our men, and Ibbotson and I climbed up to the hayrick. After tying a stick in front of us and looping a little hay over it to act as a screen, we made ourselves comfortable and waited for the leopard, which we felt sure would not escape us on this occasion. As evening closed and heavy clouds spread over the sky, and as the moon was not due to rise until nine, we had a a necessity to depend on the electric light for the accuracy of our shooting until then. This light was heavy and cumbersome affair, and as Ibbotson insisted on my taking a shot, I attached it to my rifle with some little difficulty. An hour after dark, a succession of angry roars apprised us of the fact that the leopard was in the trap. Switching on the electric light, I saw the leopard rearing up with the trap dangling from its forelegs and taking a hurried shot. My 45... 45, four, ugh. my 450 bullet struck a link in the chain and severed it. Freed from the peg, the leopard went along the field in a series of great leaps, carrying the trap in front of him. Followed up by the bullet from my left barrel and two lethal bullets from Ibbotson's shotgun, all of which missed. In trying to reload my rifle, I displaced some of the light after which it refused to function. Hearing the roars of the leopard in our four shots, the people in the Rujapraig Bazaar and nearby villages swarmed out of their houses carrying lanterns and pine torches and converged from all sides on the isolated house. Shouting to them to keep clear was of no avail, for they were making so much noise that they could not hear us. So while I was climbing down the tree, taking my rifle with me, a hazardous proceeding in the dark, Ibbotson lit and pumped up the petrol lamp we had taken into the Meachin with us. Letting the lamp down to me on the end of the length of the rope, Ibbotson joined me on the ground, and together we went in the direction the leopard had taken. Halfway along the field, there was a hump caused by an outcrop of rock. This hump we approached with Ibbotson holding the heavy lamp high above his head, while I walked by his side with my rifle to my shoulder. Beyond the hump was a little depression. Crouching within this depression and facing us and growling was the leopard. Within a few minutes of my bullet crashing into his head, we were surrounded by an excited crowd who literally danced with joy around their long-dreaded enemy. The animal that lay dead before me was an outsized male leopard, who the previous night had tried to tear down a partition, partition to get at a human being, and who had been shot at in an area in which dozens of human beings had been killed, all good and sufficient reasons for assuming he was the man-eater. But I could not make myself believe that he was the animal I had seen the night I sat over the body of the woman. True, it had been dark, and I had only vaguely seen the outline of the leopard. Even so, I was convinced that the animal that was now being lashed to a pole by willing hands was not the man-eater. So Corbett has his doubts, even though, you know, he seems to have gotten his kill. What are we thinking? I don't think so. Yeah. I see how far you are through that book, and there's uh, three quarters left. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> unless it's just him being like, oh, we like celebrated for months on end, and then I left. But no. No. no, 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 no. Well, let's find out. 
I feel like the man the man eater is not dumb enough to fall in a trap. Not saying this leopard is, but I feel like this man eating leopard is a little a little smarter than average and sees that and it's like that's a trap and not going in there. Yeah, because it's like able to like navigate into spaces where like people are like highly pop like not highly populated, but they're populated enough that like people would be able to hear something. So it'd probably be able to like dodge a trap. Smarter than your average leopard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for the first night in many years, every house in the bazaar was open, with women and children standing in the doorways. Progress was slow, for every few yards the leopard was put down to let the children cluster around and get a better view of it. At the farther end of the long street our escort left us, the leopard was carried in triumph to the bungalow by our men. By our men. Returning to the bungalow after a wash at my camp, the Ibbotsons and I, both during and long after it, put forward our arguments for and against the dead leopard being the man-eater. Eventually, without either side convincing the other, we decided that as Ibbotson had to get back to his work in Powry, and I was tired out after my long stay at Rouge Priag, we would spend the next day in skinning the leopard and drying it, and on the day after, would break camp and make for Powry. From early morning to late evening, relays of men kept coming in from near and distant villages to see the leopard, and as most of these men asserted that they recognized the animal as the man-eater, the conviction of the Ibbotsons that they were right and I was wrong grew. Two concessions at my request Ibbotson made. He added his warning to the people to mind, not to relax precautions against the man-eater, and he refrained from telegraphing to tell the government that we had shot the man-eater. We went to bed early that night, for we were to start at daybreak next morning. I was up while it was still dark and having Chota Hazri when I heard voices on the road. As this was very unusual, I called out to ask what men were doing on the road at that hour. On seeing me, four men climbed out, climbed up the path to my camp and informed me they had been sent by the Patuari to tell me a woman had been killed by the man-eater on the far side, on the far side of the river, about a mile from the Chatwapipal Chat, Bridge. So it wasn't the man-eater. He got one leopard, but it seems to not have been the one that he was after. So his instincts were right. With the report of the latest victim, Corbett and Ibbotson took off on horseback towards the village where the woman was taken. Corbett noted that while they walked over the suspension bridge, which had not been barricaded the night before, most likely the man-eater fled over this exact same bridge to the other side and took a person from the first village he came across. What they found when they arrived was a patuari guarding the body with about 20 other men all of whom were beating drums to keep the leopard at bay, although Corbett suspected the cat was long gone by now. The victim was, quote, a very robust and fair girl, some 18 to 20 years of age. She was lying in her face and with her hands by her sides. Every vestige of clothing had been stripped from her, and she had been licked by the leopard from the soles of her feet to her neck, in which were four great teeth marks. Only a few pounds of flesh had been eaten from the upper portion of her body, and a few pounds from her lower portion. The men visited the woman's residence where her husband and child presided. The husband then told Corbett and Ibbotson that two days prior he had left to give evidence in a land dispute case and had left his father in charge of the house. On the night of her death, just before retiring for the night, the woman had handed her child off to her father-in-law to go to the bathroom outside. In those few moments, the leopard had taken the girl without a sound and dragged her body to where it lay when Ebbotson and Corbett had arrived. 
Much like their prior stakeouts, Corbett and Ibbotson positioned themselves up a tree near the victim's body and waited till nightfall for the leopard to return. But their bad luck streak is going to continue, and this night would be marked as another failure. The man-eater had returned for its prize, but spying the men in the tree very quickly retreated before either of them could get a shot off. Defeated, the two men carefully made their way back to their, to their men uh, in their nearby villages and homes. The next day, unfortunately, Ibbotson has to leave for business, so Corbett is preparing for his own departure when he is alerted that a cow had been taken by the man-eater in a village four miles away. He found the carcass and tried yet again to bait the leopard. He poisoned the dead cow with cyanide and set up the gin trap near the portion of the body he knew the leopard would feed from. When Corbett came back the next day, he got his hopes up seeing the fresh pug marks leading to the kill. Yet when he arrived to see the body eaten with the trap undisturbed, he felt as if he had made no progress at all. This is the last straw in a string of failures for Corbett, and he decides to return to Nanital to recuperate. He promises to the people of Garhual that he will be back with a clearer mind and better strategy to rid the region of their man-eater. You rage quit a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't blame I him. I mean, could you imagine, though? I mean, he's, he's been so out pissed. there for weeks. <laughs> I don't know if it's more pissed or if it's, you know, if you're literally sitting out in, like, torrential downpour every single night mm-hmm. for, like, over two months, about that, a month and a half, and you're not any closer than you were the first day you got there, and more people keep dying. I can understand him just being like, I, I gotta I'm rethink stuck. this. Yeah, it's Stop. like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I need to go <laughs> yeah. back, get like proper sleep, and rethink what I'm doing here. Which, respect. I mean, I'm glad yeah. he did that as opposed to making the careless mistake of trying to keep going, because it could have cost him his life. You know, any careless mm. mistake. I mean, the fucking tree, for example. He literally was like, huh, I bet you the leopard could use this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to me, I think it's fascinating that, uh, not to like make this like a, a fictional story, because this is a real thing that happened, but in terms of like how good of a fictional story it is, these are two very intelligent beings at the top of their game in both respected fields. It's really, it's interesting. They're equally matched. It's like a little cat and mouse game. Yeah. So let's continue. He returns, uh, see, he left, he leaves, Corbett leaves in the late autumn of 1925. And he returns to Garhwal in the early spring of 1926. In the three-month absence, the leopard has taken ten more people, the last of which was a small boy, taken on the left side of the Alakananda, just two days before Corbett and Ibbotson re-arrived to Rujaprayak. I don't know why my voice is so fried. Steps were taken immediately to close the suspension bridges, and for five days, the men sat perched near the bridge in hopes the leopard would return and attempt to cross, but no luck. And Ibbotson, uh, unfortunately, would leave for business shortly thereafter, leaving Corbett to handle the situation alone. Over the next few days, the leopard continued to take cattle and dogs from the nearby village, and try as Corbett might, the animal was seemingly always one paw step ahead of his pursuer. One such example was upon Ibbotson's return on the 31st of March. The two men purchased a goat in hopes of it baiting the leopard, and the goat actually turned out to be a perfect fit. Its frantic bleats and calls had drawn the man-eater in toward the men. It's kind of like the, the goat in Jurassic Park. That's like just oh what they're gosh. doing over and over again. Uh, but the frantic calls had drawn the man-eater toward the men. But of course, being an animal who had been hunted by humans for almost a decade at this point, uh, the animal had its own suspicions of this seemingly free meal. Yet again, neither men had the opportunity to get the leopard in their scope. 
And when Corbett called it quits, he went to collect the goat to try again for another night. The goat, of course, had other ideas. Uh, it resisted against the rope tied around its neck. And when Corbett ordered for the leash to be removed, he thought it would stay by their side on the way back to the village, wanting companionship. <laughs> it, they're a social animal. That's why yeah. it's crying. Uh, unfortunately, it immediately bolted off into the night. The men chased after the goat, not wanting to lose their cattle nor the good money they spent on it. And to quote Corbett, I was leading. And as we got halfway along the hundred yards of track bordered on the upper side by scattered bushes and on the steep lower side by short grass, I saw something white on the track in front of me. The light had nearly gone, and on cautiously approaching the white object, I found it was the goat, laid head and tail on the narrow track, in the only position in which it could have been laid to prevent it from rolling down the steep hillside. Blood was oozing from its throat, and when I placed my hand on it, the muscles were still twitching. It was as though the man-eater, for no other leopard would have killed the goat and laid it on the track, had said, Here, if you want your goat so badly, take it. And as it is now dark and you have a long way to go, we will see which of you lives to reach the village. We left the goat lying where the leopard had placed it, and when I returned at daybreak the next morning, I found the peg marks of the man-eater where he had followed us down to the village. And I found the goat untouched and lying just as it had been left. Poor goat. I mean, I, just every story he tells, it gets creepier. Like, yeah. that leopard had been there and waited and then killed the goat mere moments before Corbett arrived. I mean, it's wild to me. So stealthy. The leopard's next victim was a man named Gawaya, who lived in a house he built for himself, his mother, and his wife and three children. At dawn the morning Corbett was informed of attack, Gawaya was seized by the leopard. The beast had grabbed his throat and dragged the man several hundred yards away before being scared off the body by the wails of the two women who'd noticed Gawaya's disappearance. With no trees near the body for him to set up in, Corbett decided to poison portions of the body with cyanide in hopes of taking the leopard this way. Upon inspection of the body the next morning, the men were dismayed to find that the leopard had eaten portions of the body which had not been laced with poison. That evening, Corbett and Ibbotson had agreed upon the latter, heading down to a mango plantation to camp out for the night, while the former remained by the body to lie in wait for the leopard. Now, during this time, Corbett can hear the leopard eating the body, and then it slowly retreats back to a watering hole nearby to quench its thirst. So long it's sitting there drinking that Corbett was sure the animal must have poisoned itself. When the man-eater fled into the jungle, back from where he came, Corbett began to have his doubts, but he wouldn't know until dawn, so he waited. Ibbotson arrived the next morning to find Corbett alive, thankfully. The two men, after going over the previous night's events, headed over to inspect the body and found with some slight delight that the leopard had in fact eaten portions of the body laced with full doses of cyanide. The search for the leopard needed to begin. So they're pretty sure, I mean, it just ate a bunch of cyanide, you know? That's, it's pretty given that it's probably dead by now. <laughs> so about a half mile from where the leopard had last been heard by Corbett, the watering hole, Ibbotson, Corbett, the Patuari, and over 200 men tracked the man-eater to an outcropping of large rocks, which formed a cave into the hillside. Corbett was certain the leopard had taken shelter in this cave, both from the tracks that led into the cavern and, more gruesomely, from the victim's toes, which the cat had spat out after having his fill. Corbett ordered the cave to be sealed, 
and the 200 men got to work moving large boulders across its opening. So the idea is, like, we can at least trap it, and if it can't get out, then it'll just die anyways. So the next morning, Corbett returned with a roll of one-inch wire netting and a number of iron pegs to wire the mouth of the cave shut. So whatever is encumbered by boulders will wire it shut. So if it does get out, we at least know it got out. For the following 10 days, Corbett returned to the cave every dawn and dusk in case the man-eater attempted to escape. During this escapade, there was no news of the cat. Uh, there was... Uh, there was no news of the cat coming from any village on the left side of the Alicananda. To quote him, my hopes each day grew stronger that on my next visit, I would surely get some indication that the leopard had died in the cave. On the 10th morning, when I returned from my visit to the cave, where I had found the netting undisturbed, Ibbotson greeted me with the news that a woman had been killed the previous night in a village about five miles away. And a mile about and about a mile from the Rujapriyak Badranath Pilgrim Road. We're gonna stop here. I'm gonna leave this as a cliffhanger. The cat is not dead, apparently, despite being poisoned and trapped in a cave for ten days. He's still here. You know I fucking hate cliffhangers. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and our listeners are gonna hate it so much more because they're gonna have to wait like two weeks before they hear the ending of the story. Well, you all will hear it in less than two hours. <laughs> what the thing do? Dig a tunnel? Dig a tunnel. What if it wasn't even in there in the first place? What if it was like, you know, Some they got leopard. there like right after it had left or something? It snuck out through the wire netting and then put it back. Smart That would be rogue. Smart right now. Now these are good theories and we'll discuss most likely what happened and the the end of this long harrowing journey for Corbett and the leopard in our next episode in our last episode of the season. So I know I'm (laughs) sending you all off with good, with good vibes. Uh, cannot wait to see you all next episode. Uh, I'm excited. Goodbye. Goodbye.